1: This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza. and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today, we bring you the story of Kevin McHale. His contributions to basketball are twofold. He had an incredible impact on the game as a player, but also as an executive and coach. And I will try to give each one equal time. Not only was Kevin McHale named as one of the 50 greatest players in NBA history, he is also a three-time champion, a seven-time all-star, a six-time member of the all-defensive team, twice he was sixth man of the year, and he is in the Hall of Fame. His low post play is the stuff of legends. So let me take you all the way back to the beginning of the story. He was born on December 19, 1957 in Hibbing, Minnesota. The town of Hibbing is a mining town in northern Minnesota, about 90 minutes from the Canadian border. In fact, the largest iron ore mine in the world is the one in Hibbing. The iron that was pulled out of that mine helped provide the raw material that fueled the American Industrial Revolution. Hibbing, Minnesota is a blue-collar town through and through. It was the kind of a place where people worked hard every single day. There was no such thing as a personal day or a mental health day. And that is not any sort of an insult, please hear me on that. We are all becoming more aware of how important mental health is for everyone to be able to function well. But back then in Hibbing, if you did not work, you did not eat. These are hardy people who knew how to put in a hard day's work. This is the culture that Kevin McHale grew up in. And grow up he did. He hit his full height of six foot 10 or 208 centimeters by the time he finished high school. He attended Hibbing High School and dominated all competition. His combination of height and quickness was simply too much for a typical high school defender. His wingspan is just short of 8 feet. In other words, he has unusually long arms which help him get off a hook shot or block a shot. He was named Mr. Basketball in Minnesota. If you are not familiar with the title of Mr. Basketball, it's given out every year to the best high school basketball player in the state. Mikhail was a 1976 mr basketball for the state of minnesota as a side note most states give out their own version of the mr basketball award mikhail as you will see in this episode loves his home state of minnesota so his choice for college was a very simple one he decided to attend the university of minnesota and become a gopher There, he continued to dominate just as he did in high school. He averaged 15 points and just under 9 rebounds per game. He was named All Big Ten in his junior and senior years. And all of these years later, he is still the number two scorer in school history. He also had the benefit of playing in a Twin Tower situation for two years. When he arrived at the University of Minnesota, the star of the team was Michael Thompson, who would become the very first pick in the 1978 NBA draft. He would later win two championships as the backup center for the Lakers when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar could not play the same minutes he did in his early days. And by the way, Michael Thompson is the father of Clay Thompson of the Golden State Warriors. Anyway, Kevin McHale had such a successful career at Minnesota that in 1995 the school named him the greatest player to ever play for the university. That is quite an honor. As the summer of 1980 rolled around, it was time to head to the NBA. The Boston Celtics actually had the first pick in the entire draft that year. And true to form, Red Arbach, the general manager of the Celtics, made one of the most lopsided trades in NBA history. And that means lopsided against the other team. He traded the top pick to the Golden State Warriors along with an additional first round pick. In return, the Celtics would receive Robert Parrish and the third pick in the 1980 draft. With the newly acquired first pick, the Warriors selected Joe Barry Carroll. His play was so lackluster that sports writer Peter Bessey nicknamed him Joe Barely Cares. The Utah Jazz selected Darryl Griffith with that second pick. And with the third pick, the Boston Celtics selected Kevin McHale, the guy they actually wanted. and He was going to join a team that already had Larry Bird, Tiny Archibald, and the newly acquired Robert Parrish all Hall of Famers, and all members of the 50 Greatest Players list. So, when the dust settled on that trade, the Warriors received two mediocre role players in Joe Barry Carroll and Ricky Brown. The Celtics received two future Hall of Famers in Parrish and McHale. The Celtics steamrolled through the league that season with a record of 62-20, which tied them with the Philadelphia 76ers led by Dr. J. But in the Eastern Conference Finals, the Celtics were able to edge out the 76ers four games to three. The finals were a bit anticlimactic, as they took care of the Houston Rockets four games to two. So McHale earned himself a ring in just his first season. From there, his personal game just continued to develop. He had low post moves that were nearly impossible to stop. He had spin moves, up and under moves, pump fakes, and a reliable hook shot. He would use his moves in such quick combinations that trying to defend mikhail in the post was known as being in mikhail's torture chamber. That is literally what NBA announcers called it. His footwork was the best in the league this side of Akeem Olajuwon. If you ever watch Akeem Olajuwon highlights on YouTube, you will know what I'm talking about. Olajuwon's moves were called the dream shake, And I would put Mikael's torture chamber right up there with Olajuwon's dream shake. Both were absolutely unstoppable. The only reason people did not talk about Mikhail more is because Mikhail had the advantage and disadvantage of always playing with three or four other Hall of Famers. The advantage was that he won three championships because he played on teams that were loaded with talent, but the disadvantage was that as great as he was, other players received more attention, particularly Larry Bird. As the seasons wore on, he seemed to just keep getting better year after year. On March 3rd, 1985, in a home game against the Detroit Pistons, McHale scored 56 points, a new Celtics record. Nobody on the Pistons could stop McHale that night. Bill Lane Beer tried, but got torched all night long. It was the most points ever scored by a Celtic. And the Celtics have had some really great players in their history. He scored more points in a Celtics jersey in a single game than Bob Cousy, or Tommy Heinsohn, or John Havlicek, or Sam Jones. He even scored more than Larry Bird ever scored in a Celtics jersey. He was a force to be reckoned with. However, his record would not last long. Even though McHale and Bird were teammates, they always had a friendly rivalry for points and attention. Just nine days after Mikhail set that franchise record? Larry Bird went and got 60 points against the Atlanta Hawks. By the way, 60 points is still the Celtics' record, which Jason Tatum tied last year. In 1986, the Celtics put together one of the most dominant runs in NBA history. They had a record of 67-15, and one of the best of all time. They lost only one home game all year long. In addition to Hall of Famers Larry Bird, Robert Parrish, and Dennis Johnson, the Celtics also added a healthy Bill Walton that year. They were a juggernaut. They lost only three games the entire playoffs. Larry Bird still jokes that his 1986 Celtics team was better than the original dream team with Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. At this point in McHale's career, he had definitely come into his own and he was as deadly a threat in the low post as anyone in the league. However, in 1987, He would perform even better. He averaged 26 points per game on 60% shooting. Nobody in the history of the NBA up to that point ever took as many shots as he did and shot it that efficiently. He also shot 84% from the free throw line. So fouling him on purpose was not going to work either. You had to play him straight up and take your chances. It was not until Shaquille O'Neal joined the league that anyone averaged that many points per game with that high of a shooting percentage. But I do not want to give the impression that he was strictly an offensive powerhouse. I mean, he was definitely an offensive powerhouse. But the guy was also named to the all defensive team six times. He blocked shots and rebounded like a beast. Remember that 8-foot wingspan that I mentioned at the top of the episode? Well, on the defensive end is where that really came in handy, as he was a top-flight two-way player. Unfortunately, 1987 was the peak of his career. He still went to four All-Star games after the 1987 season, but his scoring output dropped each season until he retired at the end of the 1993 season. You see, what happened was that he broke a bone in his foot in March of that 1987 season. At first, the Celtics thought that they might have lost Mikhail for the entire season. The Celtics were looking to defend their title, but that blue collar spirit in Mikhail came through. Rather than miss time, he told the Celtics trainer to just wrap his foot really tight and he would play through the pain. And I remember this. I was 12 years old during the 1987 playoffs and I could not believe that he was playing with a broken bone in his foot. Further, I could not believe how efficient he still was. I have mentioned many times before that I am an unapologetic Lakers fan. I was born and raised in Southern California and came up during the Showtime Laker days. I still bleed purple and gold to this day. The Celtics played the Lakers in the NBA Finals that year. Even with a broken foot, McHale was still scary good. Kurt Rambis and A.C. Green had to take turns for the Lakers defending McHale. As a Lakers fan, I am just thankful that the Lakers were able to pull it out to win their 10th championship. Now, normally, when we talk about the best low post players in league history, we talk about centers like Mikan, Chamberlain, Kareem, Shaq, Duncan, and Olajuwon. But McHale deserves to be in that conversation, even as a power forward. I cannot say enough about just how good of a player he was, but this is also a good time for me to take a break, and we will be right back after this.
0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
1: Welcome back to the show, and we will continue to talk about Kevin McHale and his impact on the NBA. I left off with his playing career. The 1987 season was the last time that the Celtics went to the finals with that team of McHale, Bird, and Robert Parrish. The team began to decline as all of the key players got older. The 1992-93 season would be McHale's last season in the NBA, but it was also his only season without Larry Bird by his side who had retired the year before. The team still reached the playoffs, however, they were knocked out in the first round by a young Charlotte Hornets team. But McHale was not out of a job for long he was immediately hired as a special assistant for the Minnesota Timberwolves and that meant that he could finally go home and still be part of the NBA. Two years later, in 1995, he was promoted to the position of general manager and he would be able to shape the team in his vision. One of the first things he did was to hire his former college teammate Flip Saunders to be the new head coach of the team. Within that first year as a general manager, McHale made the best personnel move in Timberwolves history. He drafted Kevin Garnett straight out of high school with the number 5 pick in the 1995 NBA draft. In hindsight, it seems like an obvious pick. Who would not have wanted to have Kevin Garnett on their team? The guy is in the Hall of Fame, and he's considered one of the greatest players in league history. However, at the time that he was drafted, he was the first player in 20 years to try to enter the NBA straight from high school. In fact, in the entire history of the NBA, only two previous players had entered the NBA straight from high school and both did it in 1975. Darryl Dawkins was the first. He was a 6'10 man-child who was able to come in and be effective very, very quickly. By the way, if you want to hear the docket story, go back and check out episode 8 where we do a profile on his career. The other player who came out in 1975 was Bill Willoughby and he was simply out of his depth in the NBA. He was not mature enough mentally or physically to handle the rigors of the NBA. He did play 8 seasons but never averaged more than 6 points per game. So when Kevin Garnett decided to go from high school straight to the NBA, many people laughed The thinking at the time was that there was no way that a kid in high school was ready to enter a league full of grown men and play successfully and consistently. Was Garnett, who was 7 feet tall and barely 200 pounds, really supposed to take on Shaquille O'Neal, Patrick Ewing, David Robinson, or Akeem Olajuwon? The NBA does not give anyone a night off. Every single game was a matchup against one of the greatest players in the world. The consensus at the time was that any player had to play in college at least for one year to prove that he could really handle himself in the NBA. It is often hard to tell how good a player is when he plays against other high school players. Many of the opponents are kids that will never even play in college. It makes it very difficult to evaluate, is the player really that good? Or is he just playing against competition that's that bad? But Garnett had a workout on the campus of the University of Illinois at Chicago. A bunch of NBA executives and coaches, including McHale, were on hand to see Garnett go through a series of drills. Garnett performed well enough that the teams were definitely interested, but it was still a gamble to take a high school kid. Just like any other profession, being an NBA general manager is about managing expectations. Too many bad draft picks and you get fired. Whichever general manager decided to take Garnett was doing so by putting his job on the line. After all, there were much more proven college big men coming out that year. There was Rashid Wallace from North Carolina, Joe Smith from Maryland, and Antonio McDyce from Alabama. These were proven players who succeeded at the college level. But when the fifth pick rolled around at that year's NBA draft, McHale went with his gut and selected Kevin Garnett. His instincts were proven right. The Timberwolves wanted to bring Garnett along slowly and not put too much pressure on him right away. But it was obvious that he was even better than advertised. His quickness and instinct could not be denied. With McHale, and as we all know now, it turned out that Kevin Garnett was the best player out of that draft. With that, McHale had a key role in ushering in the era of the high school player. Garnett's success led to two more high school players declaring for the draft the following year. Those players were Kobe Bryant and Jermaine O'Neal, who was an all-star talent. Then the floodgates busted open. Every team wanted to get one of these high school players. Nobody wanted to miss out on the next Garnett or Kobe. But I want to recognize Kevin McHale as the general manager who was willing to take that chance when other teams were not. He deserves a lot of credit for that. However, I do need to mention one of the negative incidents of his career as an executive. In the summer of 1998, he had a chance to get Joe Smith as a free agent, and he signed him to a series of secret contracts that paid him less than his value with a promise of a huge payday three years later. The NBA commissioner David Stern found out about it and canceled all of those contracts, and as punishment, the league took away three first-round draft picks from the Timberwolves. This hampered their ability to improve the team for years to come. McHale knew full well that the deal broke NBA rules, which is why he tried to keep it a secret. Now he would later go on to coach the Timberwolves and the Houston Rockets to decent success. Now he now works as an analyst for the NBA TV network. His impact both as a player and a general manager were significant. But before we end our time together, I want to share one final story of Kevin McHale. Back in 1990, he appeared in an episode of the TV sitcom Cheers, which was set in a Boston bar called Cheers. In that episode, the gang from Cheers decided to challenge their rival bar, Gary's Old Town Tavern, to a game of three-on-three basketball. But they agreed that all the players had to be employees of the respective bars. Well, the Cheers gang found out that Gary's Old Town Tavern had hired a couple of really tall former college players to be bartenders so that they could play on the team. While well, the Cheers gang decided to take things a step further, they went out and hired Kevin McHale to tend bar for a couple of days prior to the game. And they told McHale that the game was for charity, which wasn't true at all. They just really wanted to win the game and had to tell McHale something. Mikhail finds out about this the night before the game, and he tells the Cheers gang that he will not play in the game unless they donate $5,000 to an orphanage. Reluctantly, they agreed, and Mikhail leads the team to victory. Now, if you want to check out that episode, it's Season 9, Episode 2. Well, that is it for today. Join us next time when we share the story of the 1969 NBA Finals between the Boston Celtics and the Los Angeles Lakers. The series had to go to the final shot of Game 7 to be decided, and it was also the final game of Bill Russell's career. That's next time on Basketball History 101. Part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of sports yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Also, go ahead and give us a rating and a review, and that will help others to find this podcast more easily. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts, as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care, and see you soon.
0: Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 miracle on ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports